Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have another Q&A with Dr. Mike Isretel from Renaissance Periodization. We start off just getting an update about him, his current cut, and also talking a bit about special sports supplements might interest some of you, and then we dig into your questions, and trust me, always, always some great take-homes when talking to Dr. Mike, and without further ado, let's get straight into the show. Enjoy. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Mike Isretel on the podcast, and I'm very excited to talk to Mike, as always, and I guess, actually, always want to start with like a little bit of an update, and I know last time we spoke, I'm pretty sure there was the mini cut, you've already gone through like a brief mass, and now you've actually started like a kind of easing your way into a diet, I believe. Is that right, Mike? Yeah, I'm full on into the diet, uh, fat loss diet, that's um scheduled to last 15 weeks but i started it a few weeks early because there's going to be this weird gray area um so i started the diet it's always good to start a little earlier i think and you can always slow things down speeding things up is a little more difficult uh, although also possible so i'm uh my body weight did some weird stuff after deloading i was 250 250 plus uh the week before deloading at the end of the deload, uh, in the first few days of my diet, I weighed in as low as 238. So, but I looked the part too. I just looked all really sunken down because, you know, no muscle damage, no water storage. The deload, I didn't eat much because uh, I was so overeating. And then on the um, first few days of fat loss diet, is like my first half of the week for me is the harder pushing further into a deficit side. And the second half is a little bit more food. So I was like, oh my God, am I, did I just gain no muscle at all? And then now I'm back up into the mid two forties regularly. And, um, man looking way, like it really is kind of absurd. I'm pretty sure I gained 10 to 15 pounds of muscle in the last nine months or something. <laughs> so kind of, kind of walk, uh, just crazy to be honest. And, yeah. uh, yeah, well, so we'll see, hopefully in December I'll step on stage. And last time I stepped on stage, at an okay looking 220 the goal this time is to step on stage very very lean and we'll see where that body weight falls uh should be higher than 220 that's really that is it's it's incredible to hear because uh, i guess a lot of the listeners are on the non kind of sports up side so like to put it into context like i put up some photos and people are like oh you've you've grown a lot like i i've maybe gained 10 pounds since my last show uh, at most and that's like four years yeah you look <laughs> yeah. like a different person too yeah so for you uh every single like year if you're able to not that you're able to repeat that sort of progress every time but it's just like and i spoke to um one of jared's clients if i've actually forgotten his name i feel bad i think it might be dylan uh i spoke to him on his podcast and he was like why have you never gone to the enhanced side and when i hear like you talk through things like that i'm like Hmm, it, there's definitely temptations in terms of that. Uh, that's yeah. that's really cool. Not not to, of course, say that it's like all down to that. I know you apply everything as much as any other person would be to gain as much as possible. But to to hear that, and now I know the photos, you're going to look incredible. Like I can just yeah yeah. Well, so like you know, the application has never been a problem, and yeah. the nuance on the diet and training side has been minimal. Uh, minimal alteration since a few years back when I first connected with Broderick. That's when things really changed. And, you know, since I connected with him, I probably gained about 10, uh, 10 to 15 pounds of muscle. 
and uh, that was gee four years ago or something. And then now I'm uh, sitting on another ten to fifteen pounds over the course of just nine months. And of course, uh, folks are quite interested. And uh, you know, since technically this podcast is in the United Kingdom, I suppose uh, we could do a pretend where I live in the United Kingdom. And uh, so I'll tell you what I did. I, uh, I visited the United Kingdom for the last nine months. I did everything the same that I always do. And I'll just be very frank. Someone will find us and uh, it'll, it'll please their hearts and bump up your views. I, uh, in this fantasy mystery world where I lived in the last nine months in the United Kingdom, I uh, used to use only as much as roughly at the highest, I would use four units of growth hormone every night or five nights a week, depending on the phase. And uh, this last nine months in fantasy pretend land, I uh, went up to six units. And it's literally just two units more. And uh, I spoke to a few very uh, in the know people, and uh, they all assured me that the results were going to be magical. And I didn't believe them offhand because that seems absurd. And then I just kept gaining weight and I never lost my ab veins. And I was like, what the fuck? And then I got a little fat and I did a mini cut that lasted two weeks and I was shredded and I was like, okay. So I just kept gaining. And the most difficult part of the mass gain was just eating all the food. I was like, holy fuck, like I can't get fat. So um, it's real. It's real. And just to put in perspective, the average dose in the IFB pro level is people say they're open about saying it's, um, you know, eight to eight to 16 or eight to 12 units. Wow. Uh, and I know tons of people who consistently go over that. Um, so, you know, I probably won't go any higher, much higher than six, because I want to live after all this strange idea. But in any case, that's, you know, that's definitely not what I did. But I could have in a mystery pretend fantasy dream world in England. Um, so, yeah, that, it's literally the only change. The only change. And everything else I've done, I've done roughly the same Um yeah, for those curious, fuck it, why not? Uh, in this also pretend fantasy world, I never. Um, I went to the most converted and would be roughly between a gram and twelve hundred milligrams of total gear the entire time. So it's so considered by FB Pro standards to be laughable, and by National USA standards to be also laughable. But uh, nonetheless, ta-da, here I am. So that's yeah, that one little change. So. Uh, there used to be this thing where you turn pro in the 90s and 2000s, and then you got like 50 pounds bigger within two years. And the question was how, and the answer was growth hormone was very expensive and hard to get back then. And so as soon as you got your pro card, you got a contract, you got some supplement sponsors, you had money, you had connects, and ta-da, then you got on. We're on a lot more than you used to be, and then it just happened. So uh, caveat to all you folks following the pros out there, how did XYZ Pro gain so much muscle? You know, gee whiz. Genetics and tons of drugs in general have very much helped, but how did radical transformations happen? Talked to a number of folks in the industry that know what they're talking about, and they said, you know, really, the more growth hormone you take, the more magical things happen. Of course, your health also goes down the shitter, and I'm definitely walking that fine line myself, but uh, it's a real thing. There's no, no joke, no joke about it at all. So I take everything with a big grain of salt and a big vial of growth hormone. I appreciate your honesty. I sure, think people sure. appreciate okay. hearing it. I know for, for I mean, me, it's all make-believe. I don't know yeah. what you mean by honest. <laughs> for me, it's way over my head. head. I'm just like, I, I literally, you could have said like any numbers and I'll be like, okay, sure. yeah, sounds good. Yeah, a few uh, years ago, I would have been in the same boat. Like, oh, right on, those are numbers. That's cool. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but it's, yeah, I can, just hearing that, and I mean, I guess this could be a whole discussion in itself, but I can easily see how 
people who aren't necessarily that educated educated in it and maybe aren't kind of i don't know even doing that much right on the outside but if they just they're just like oh things have stagnated i'll just up the dose like that's the joke right but yeah, i can see and i can see how that gets people in trouble very quickly yeah yeah you, it works real well you up the dose and then after a while you get your blood work done and your doctor's like we're gonna die real soon and you're like oh my god and then you make a facebook post on instagram and say i'm backing away from this war for a little while i'm really gonna prioritize my health because you're a fucking idiot and you never did and you have an iq of a fucking doorknob and you're a reckless piece of shit and everyone told you different but you didn't want to hear them so you know there's a guy that uh, made a re- recent uh, youtube video for rp I like to track my uh, typical daily intake when I was going up to 250 pounds. And one guy's like, man, I wonder what a cycle is. I'd love to get that big. And you're like, fucking moron. Like, yes, you'll just get exactly that big taking exactly what I took. Like people out there are real like that, man. They're real. And, uh, and, and, and people who use, uh, drugs in general tend to be of lower intelligence and, and less conscientiousness to begin with. Uh, explaining why more of them are quite reckless. So trying to stay on that not reckless side. And it's one of the reasons we almost never discuss it. But since I'm on your podcast, I'll drop a few nuggets. It just, you know, public service announcement, you know, if, if your plan is to take some insight from this, that's really good. If your plan is to sort of do what I do and um, you have, you have IQ'd your way out of any reasonable discussion and you need to go read books more. I don't know what to say. It's, uh, yeah, it's done all the time. And um, you don't have to put too fine a point on it, but recently bodybuilding has been filled with a few too many deaths and that shit is not by accident. So if you think drugs are fun and they're all play things and you can just add muscle with no cost, there's no saying my ass isn't going to drop dead in the near future. And I'll have lived well, but far too short. So don't do dumb shit you don't understand. I think that is so important because I'd seen some things and I, I don't know how much truth there is to all of it and like the coaches involved or what have you, but like as a coach, the number one thing I'm thinking is always like do no harm. And like, I, I think coaches have a huge responsibility for that, but it also has to be said the individual getting into all of it, it's really important to educate yourself as well. And like you're saying, that's essentially where you're coming from is like, do your due diligence it's not like you're getting into like a creatine or something like that yeah for sure i i I tend to agree with you steve i think that the individual is actually primarily responsible for their own health um as long as the coach doesn't tell them any lies and um, disillusions them about what the realities are so if you come to a coach and you say i want to take everything it takes to turn pro and they say listen this is going to really put you at serious risk do you understand that and you go, yes, then literally you could yeah. die and it's not their fault at all. It just isn't because you, you know, like, gee, <laughs> there's all kinds of things where if you sign the waiver, you're, yeah. you're good, good is gone. Uh, that literally was literally all on you because you made the call and you were very, very made, made very well aware of what was going to happen in, in all likelihood and, or could possibly happen. And then on the other hand, if the coach never really tells you anything or if the coach says, oh, this is totally fine, you'll be fine. Then, you know, some of the onus is definitely on the coach. Uh, I would say not from a perspective of morality, but a perspective of like, oh, do you really want to work with a coach like that who's just not going to avail you to the realities? Um, I will say there's a, a deep sadness to um, to the following. Uh, coaches are getting shat on currently, some of them, and, and some of them probably deserve every bit of getting shat on. Um, but I will say there's a huge factor that's being discussed by some. It's good. Maybe not by as many as I'd like to see, but 
Because athletes, a lot of times, uh, the ones that will end up dead are like moths to the light. If you, as an evidence-based coach that's decent and won't push crazy dosages on people, stop pushing crazy dosages on people, you turn down your porch light, they'll flutter around and find the next brightest porch light and fly to that. All it takes is one coach to be mega dosing people. And by the way, most of the coaches at the very top are pushing unreal doses because it's an arms race. And so a lot of times people say, oh my God, it's the coaching. Like, yeah, you know, no one's doing this involuntarily. And uh, when your coach sends you your cycle, you can always just go on some stupid forum and uh, ask around to see, hey, is this cycle reasonable? Or you just read about typical cycles and we find out your cycle is an order of magnitude more drugs than everything you've seen. Uh, you know, that, that could uh, irk you or, or you could tell yourself, fuck that brother, it's what it takes. And you know, if that's what you say to yourself, when you die, it will make sense. It won't be just, it won't be fair, it won't be good. People will miss you, it's terrible, but it won't be a mystery. So take care of yourself and understand what you're getting yourself into. Yeah. This reminds me of, uh, I remember I did uh, like a depletion week with uh, Broderick and uh, it was in that peak, like that peak week. And I remember reaching out to you, Mike, because I wasn't feeling great. And you were like, you're not playing with things as a natural. You're not playing with things as long as you're not doing crazy with your sodium and fluid. You're, you're not doing anything that's going to like really like, you're not causing damage. Like yeah. you can be pretty confident for that, especially like for a male in a, like that sort of situation. Like, it's not extended, uh, yeah. but with what you're talking about like there is real risk involved and i think yeah. maybe people some younger individuals who are maybe a bit ignorant to it all just think of it like oh it's just like i don't know training to failure like put it all in like go harder like it's just another thing i need to go harder with or but it's, it's you're playing with fire in a sense yeah so diuretics are the clearest example of that yeah if you take diuretics then your body no longer manages its own water a pill manages your water and how do you know that you're too dehydrated to continue to be alive? Well, generally, your body will prevent any more water from leaching out. You'll stop peeing almost entirely. You'll stop sweating. Your energy levels will sink. So if you take a diuretic, you just keep peeing. Your energy levels definitely sink. But then you talk to your coach, and he's like, this is what pro-level conditioning is all about. And you go, okay. And then you, you know, do your show, and on the rebound back up, you die in your hotel room, and no one knows about it for a few hours. I'd like to be less macabre, but that's that's how it happens. Yeah. So as soon as you start playing with uh, with internal chemistry, when you take the autoregulation loops out, then it's all on you. And heck, uh, bad things can happen. So just know what you're getting yourself into. I would say, um, if you ever have, have you ever had John Jewett on this? Uh, yeah. He, yeah, yeah. We just released it. Oh, great. That's right. Yes, I'm sure he said, but uh, it's worth repeating that. You know, diuretics are one of these things that are best used not at all or just a little bit to fine-tune what you have going on uh you know and there are different kinds of uh, diuretics that have very different mechanisms of action and very different risk profiles so there's aldactone for example which really the only thing it does is um is, is considered a very weak diuretic and unimpressive by medical standards so if you come to the hospital with like this actually does happen from heart failure you have 50 pounds of extra body water in your lower limbs they don't give you all dactone that would be like some kind of cruel joke they give you injectable lasix or iv lasix and you just start peeing every 20 minutes completely clear gallons of fluid until all the water's gone so dactone what it really does is it cancels out the ten the tendency of androgens to store body water via the androgenic body water storage loop it just kind of cancels that part out 
to all of a sudden you have the dryness of kind of a natty and you know what natty dryness is like everyone at a natty show that's lean is like a fucking roadmap like what the fuck happened to you that's all you really need to do then most a lot of people don't even get that kind of uh androgen water retention they don't even need aldactone but aldactone is a very very safe very manageable it only works after several days of using it maybe like a week and then you pull it out slowly and everything's fine as long as you don't overdo the potassium intake then you're probably okay especially if you monitor blood work which you should be doing but then there are, so, so aldactone, you know, there's almost no one's dying from that. That would be a real uh, impressive feat to pull off. And what that really does is if you're lean and if you nail your protocol right, the aldactone just makes sure you're not extra watery from, from the gear and then you look great. And then you look like probably John Jewett or something. Well, you'd have to die for 15 years to look like John Jewett. <laughs> so are the rest of us, but in any case, you look as lean as you had coming, right? As lean as you actually are versus extra water. Then you mess with other substances like Lasix, for example, and you do it improperly, but Lasix has no bottom end to how much water it can pull out of you. It can pull enough water out of you until you die. Uh, Galdactone, that would be a real, real difficult trick. Lasix, very straightforward. So now you're going for the extra. And the question is, why are you going for the extra? Because we all know that if you pull enough water from the human body, it actually starts to look quite uh, stringy and dry and the, and, the, and the muscles looks really small and you look kind of like shit. You look at everyone's like, oh, he's dry and lean, but he looks sick. Um, you don't want to look like that. So there's only so much Lasix you can take until it stops making you under the skin drier and look cooler looking and starts really pulling water from the muscles. And that means you can't really take that much Lasix without there being a top end. How much is probably effective? And what? And the good news is that top end is not so dangerous. Other uh, thing is people get to a certain level of conditioning. They may not be taking aldactone. They still have androgen-related water. And they go, fuck, I got to get all this out with as much Lasix as possible. And their coach doesn't know their fucking dick from the asshole. So he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, let's fix it up. And then all of a sudden you get all kinds of real bad stuff. So in this, you know, um, that's it. So basically what you want to do is get in real good shape, manage your nutrition and salt and water really well. And then you're already 90% of the way there. You take some aldactone the last two weeks before prep at a consistent dosage you discuss with a medical you know, professional. And all of a sudden you're as dry and toasty as, as you're ever really going to get. And then maybe you you know, go to bed that night and take one Lasix tab and maybe not. And you wake up the next morning, super shredded and you go on stage. And then if it's going to take more diuretics to get you where you need to be, then maybe you should have dieted longer or maybe you should have dieted smarter and maybe you're too fat. Maybe you have some other body water issues that are best solved by other chemicals, not the brute force drive of something powerful like Lasix, which can, if misused, bleed to death. Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. And Mike, I, I didn't really intend this to go down this route, but I think oh, it's okay. a good discussion. If, like, I know your resource generally is uh, Broderick Chavez for this yeah, sort of yeah. stuff, and he's got his member site. So if people want, like, in-depth, oh, yeah. ask an expert, sure. that would be the way to go. Sure. sure. And uh, Broderick is, is unbelievably good at starting very low with anything he recommends folks take and hydrating up only as needed from there. Um, I found that for the level of athlete he's typically used to working at, his approach is bafflingly conservative. Um, he's actually had some folks ask him to really turn up the dial. And he said, no, and just got, he told them that he couldn't work with them because he's not interested in that sort of risk profile. Very, very unique for a top level coach. And which is one of the reasons why Broderick doesn't work with a ton of super high level open class IFB pros. Because right. a lot of those guys are interested in going for going for the gold, no matter what it takes. It's just not into that sort of thing. 
So if you want to get real jacked, real lean and stay alive, Broderick's your bet. If you're not so interested in the staying alive part, if it seems optional to you, then there's tons of other coaches to choose from, which you've probably heard of in uh, major social media. It makes hearing this makes more and more sense to why like the classic division opened up. Yeah, um, it's a great division. I love people, the classic yeah. division. Because there's yeah, gee, you know, first of all, they don't look at your glutes much because they're supposed to be covered. But if you're nice and crisp, but you don't have the driest glutes in the world, nobody cares. Um, you, ideally, it's good to be as lean as possible. But and then if you're not trying to get super ultra big, you don't have to run a ton of gear, a ton of growth. Already you're in better shape, better health. Some of those guys don't even run gear much of the year. They just run it into the contest and then come off, which is a really good idea. Classic, classic's a great division. And to be honest, man, those guys look fucking sweet, man. Like th- those guys look like the bodybuilder we all tried to become when we were younger, you know? Like, yeah. uh, nah, I've, I, I for sure have different goals nowadays because I fell in love with the, the crazy freak game. Yeah. But uh, it's just great that that's an option. There's a, there was a, a while when I was uh, first reading bodybuilding magazines in the early 2000s, there was a clear, painful gap in the sport where people were like, okay, I can look like a guy at the gym who has no outlet for competition or the next best thing is Marcus Roll. Like there's nowhere to compete between those. And then men's physique got started and that was great. And then classic physique. And to be honest, I think classic physique is like, uh, is really it. I would love to see classic physique become the most contentious, uh, the most fought for most competitive, most well-paid Mr. Olympia, because I think that, of course, my, my personal view is I like, like, like the freaks. I like the ultra conditioning. Yeah. Um, but I think that for most people to have fun and be healthy and et cetera, I think classic physique is phenomenal. Have you heard of, um, Bob Waterhouse? Probably not. He's, he's yeah. a natural and, uh, he's ah. an IFBB classic physique pro. Like oh, there's there some guys yeah like the top of the natural scene are now getting into like, they're even like, if they bring, he, he gets crazy conditioned yeah. and has like impeccable shape. He's obviously very muscular, but like the top natties are like just about scraping. Well, he's not yeah, just yeah, about, yeah. I mean, he's a pro. So yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. If you it's, can do it natty, then you know, it's not that unhealthy. Yeah. So, that's yeah. kind of, I mean, he is at like great genetics, but like he's doing everything for it. So yeah, it's a cool it's a cool division. I don't really see like the there's a, it's another discussion whether or not classic should be in natural bodybuilding. I don't really think it makes sense for natural bodybuilding. I think it's the same thing. I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's yeah, it. it's a very hard time telling them apart. Uh, <laughs> is there a classic division in natural bodybuilding? Some no federations That's do it. That's just a money grab. Yeah, most most are. Yeah, yeah. You've got men's physique if you want to go like that route. I think. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, don't like we, should we get to? Whatever. I'm just kidding. <laughs> sorry. I said, if you don't like to lift weights, you can do men's physique. I'm oh, right. <laughs> I did get someone ask. I shared like a client who did men's physique. And he was like, why, why is he wearing board shorts? I was like, that's men's physique. He's like, yeah, but why Why did they decide to do this? I'm like, it's the criteria. <laughs> yeah. He just wants California, me to like California with him. <laughs> surfer physique. That's what they're looking for. Sort of. Except at 180 and ripped to shreds. I don't know. That, that's a strange. Actually, now that classic is real. Olympia caliber men's physique is a strange division. You're like, well, what is exactly the goal here, folks? Like, and a lot of those guys, if they train their legs, I mean, they all have great shape genetics. They'd all be yeah. basically top class physique guys anyway. So it's kind of yeah, like, it's very true. Cool. Um, yeah, let's get into some Q and A. Otherwise, I'll just talk to you about this all day, which sure, is sure. still a good discussion. Um, so, Michael Neely asked, "How essential are bands or glute loops for maximizing glute development?" 
how would Mike set up a program structure for maximizing glute hypertrophy? Steve, he gave some excellent facial expressions in that reading. That I was question. like, that was a different question. That was a very big question, like a small question followed by a very big question. Yes. So um, bands and stuff aren't that great, I don't think. I think the force curve with bands is usually backwards to what you really want. Um, they have some utility, but I would say it's relatively minimal. Bands are great for when you want something to travel with that you can train with um, and just not require... So generally speaking, if you're staying at home, I think having a few dumbbells is better as a home gym. What the fuck's traveling with a few dumbbells? I mean, really just two 10 kilo dumbbells. It's a lot of weight. So you're not going to travel with that. So, and also it's weird airport staff will look at you funny when you scan them. Uh, so bands are excellent uh, for that purpose of, of travel training. Uh, they can enhance some exercises, but generally speaking, we want the stretch to be really big at the bottom maximizing hypertrophy bands apply the most force at the top of a movement which is backwards as Mano Henselmans has pointed out on numerous occasions um, so like band assisted pull-ups are one of the worst ways you can do pull-ups if you don't have any other option it's the best option <laughs> by definition if you have any other options better to not use them uh, band loops and stuff like that for glute work are probably um, add maybe a percent effectiveness to your training maybe not depending on the context i would say just rest up longer and do the compound basics um, and how do i set up a glute program uh, same way i'd set up any other program you pick the most uh, the highest stimulus to fatigue ratio exercises for glutes and i would say for glutes because they're involved so heavily in leg training what i would do is if i was serious very very serious about glute hypertrophy i would do glute isolations first in every single leg day and then after that everything else becomes limited more by glutes and thus the glutes get even more work so for example I would do like multiple sets of hip thrusts of some kind, really holding the contraction at the top or multiple sets of dumbbell or barbell lunges. You can have several days in your program, two to three days a week is probably best. And I would start one of those days with like lunges and one with hip thrusts or something like that. Maybe one heavy hip thrust, maybe one in a week later, high rep. No, no place exercises, uh, exercises after that train the rest of the leg, but also train the glutes a lot. So sumo deficit deadlifts, sumo squats right after. And uh, those two exercises alone can add up to, gee, eight to 10 sets, two to three times a week of really, really awesome glute training. I think if that doesn't grow your glutes, you should probably just go follow Breck Contreras, the glute expert, he really is, and look into the more intricate glute program design because he has a trillion different kinds of glute programs and better. Still, he has a trillion different ideas about depending on what exercises you feel best connected with and best pump with and soreness from, et cetera, then you could choose them. And some of them are quite unique but uh, I, you know, that's something I would try if the basics didn't work so well. So I would say that's my, you know, and then the rest is like any other program, slowly add load and or reps over time. Like if you started hip thrusting with good technique, 100 kilos for sets of 10, it eventually worked up to 130 kilos for sets of 10. If your sumo deadlift is up, if your sumo squat is up, your glutes will almost certainly be bigger. There's not really a way around that. And uh, generally speaking, not a very difficult muscle to train. It's an enormous muscle. You can connect with it quite easily. And um, uh, technique doesn't matter because you don't want to just want to schmeg around and use whatever muscles you can. But glutes training is pretty straightforward. Another thing is that because it's such a large muscle and covers a large surface area, you know, if you gain a pound in your glutes, it might actually be super visually apparent because, you know, the glutes might weigh like 10 pounds each. You know, gaining a pound in the glutes is only a 5% gain to the muscle itself. I'm not, I don't typically, you know, if your car, your driveway got 5% bigger, you might be like, oh, remember that car being that big 
I don't know, maybe it's just my eyes are watery today. It's not that clear. So it's going to take a long time. Generally speaking, you know, the before and after pictures in which people get much bigger glutes. When I mean, you look at the, take a guess at the volume that increased in the glutes, it's probably like increased by a third or something. Good God, that's a lot. And that's going to take a long time. That's going to take months and months and months. Uh, big muscles are interesting in the fact that like if you have biceps or something, calves, they're smaller muscles, and you bring them up and you add just a small fraction to their size, it becomes visually apparent quite quickly. Um, and, and even you can add a large fraction to their size because the total amount of muscle that is isn't that much. You got, you got a pound to each bicep. Holy fuck. You might have just doubled your bicep size. But, um, you know, for glutes and back and quads, some people are like, it's not working. And you say, well, you're way stronger all these exercises. And if you get a DEXA scan, it can tell you, like, actually, you've increased muscle volume considerably. And like, why can't I tell? Because well, you can need to double and triple these gains in order to be able to tell in clothes or on stage. So it really is one of those things where um, time, time, and time and patience pays off big. Very well said. I think what's really nice uh, with, like, now you've got your hypertrophy textbook out and all the videos you have over on your YouTube channel is, like, for a lot of these questions, like, how would you, I don't know, bring up a muscle group or do a certain training program to specify for a certain muscle group. It's not like every muscle group is like, has a completely different way. It's like, once no. you understand the principles you kind of outline there, you can apply that. Like you could have insert, you could have been talking about almost any muscle group there oh, yeah. in some sort of way. So uh, like, it's like, just a remind, I'm just saying it as a reminder to people, like go, go read the books or so, like, yeah. uh, the, yeah. like understand the principles and they just, uh, it just makes programming and everything so much simpler for you. Yeah, thanks, Steve. And also like the, uh, like just type Google Isratel muscle guide hypertrophy renaissance or some shit, and it'll come up. We have guides for every single muscle, including exercise selection, recommended periodization, sample programs. It's all there completely for free. No login, no email, nothing. It's just pop up like a web page, and it's each one's like 10 pages long. And it's about every single muscle, as far as I can tell, uh, individually and all kinds of training techniques and everything. So if you want to learn how to train the glutes, there's literally a guide for glutes. So go ahead and click awesome. on that. Cool. We get to the next question, which is from Cameron Dantier. And he's asked, how does one optimally utilize myo reps? I think I had to make a video about this sooner or later because people seem to be... Uh, um, out in the know. So my reps are just a version of rest pause reps that uh, Berge Fagarelli came up with and uh, a few years back. You do a set of 15 to 20 reps, then you rest a few seconds and you do another set real close to failure. It's 15 to 20 reps also close to failure. And you rest a few more seconds and you do another set uh, close to failure. There's a bit of uh, choice of the user as to how many reps those sets should have so the first one should have generally 15 to 20 but, but i think it's more expanded than that i like to say myo reps is do a set close to failure the rest just maybe three to ten seconds and then there's some variation there that includes different exercises and then go again and uh, i'll just tell you sort of the theoretical concept uh, and then you can just whoever is listening to this can alter their application to make sure the theoretical checkpoints are hit. Theoretical concept is, you know, you have um, in any set that is, let's say, with your 20 RM, the first maybe 10 to 15 reps, or what you can call as you can call lead-in reps, uh, they don't specifically push your muscle close to its limits. They're still very hypertrophic, but maybe not quite as hypertrophic as the last five reps when you're going close to failure and generating lots of metabolites and all that. So by resting only you know a few seconds after and then going again. 
that next mini set, that mile rep set, all the reps are going to be real close to failure. And then you do it again, and all those reps are real close to failure. So it might actually give you a little bit more of a per set effect. And it's a great way to save time. And it's a great way to form a mind-muscle connection and really target a muscle and hit a muscle that you just generally don't feel a lot of connection with. So if you say, man, I never really feel the burn in my biceps, you're doing straight sets of 10. And the last couple of reps, you kind of start to feel a burn, but then you put it down. But with my reps, you do a set of 10 and then you rest a couple of seconds, do another set of three or four, another set of two or three, another set of two or three. All those latter sets, you feel uh, the bicep burn like crazy. And that can really help if you have uh, muscles that you're really trouble hitting. For me, I use my reps mostly on muscles that I have trouble with and or muscles uh, in which you're allowed to rest. Um, the, the, the setup lets you rest between mini sets easily and then go again, but also one in which the setup takes a little bit of a long time and so do rest breaks between sets. So for example, leg presses and hack squats are almost ideal for my reps. Like once you get your dumb ass into the hack squat and get jacked up for it, unrack the fucking weight, you might as well, like after you get close to failure, all you need to do is lock out your knees and take three deep breaths. You just open up three or five more effective reps right in front of you. You might as well just get it done. And that way you need to do a total of three sets for hack squats versus six, because you, you know after you do a set of 10 in the hack squat, if you rack the weight instead of doing a, a total of 18 reps with two or three more my rep uh, sets, if you just rack the weight, you, you gotta rest a long time until you feel fresh again, another set of 10. And then it, it leads into this thing where just the workout takes longer. And right when you're getting into that real good feeling of all oh, our muscles really being pushed, you have to rack the weight. Now, that's not the case for a lot of other exercises. So for example, like pull-ups, you do a set of 10 and you rest five seconds, you'll do a set of one, and then you just won't do any more pull-ups and that'll be stupid. Squats, you're going unra- to unrack, walk back, go, 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 rack, walk back again with no weight, breathe a couple seconds, unrack again. I mean, you're, you're already into 30 seconds of just racking and unracking. And that's a huge waste of your energy. So if the exercise allows a very easy transition from lifting to not lifting, but requires lots of rest breaks and you have trouble feeling the muscle, my reps are a good candidate. Uh, if that does not, if those things do not apply, my reps may not be a great candidate and you may just be better off doing uh, straight sets. Cool. Yeah. What in a way of like uh, implementing it into the guy, how you guys tend to program, at least the way I've tended to ended up doing it is kind of take that first set to the RER program for the week. And then I take maybe three to five breaths, like you said, and then go the mini sets to that same RER for the week. So if it's like week one and then every week it just progresses. And when I do it like that, it's just for online programming works really nicely for people. But even when I'm doing it myself, it's like, oh, now it just works in the schema. Like you said, rep match or beat kind of works yep. just yep. the same way. Same so, as any other set. Yep, 100%. Yeah. But so you for- got you got to write down all the little mini set yes. things that you hit. Or you can say, I did 18 reps with two Maya rep breaks. So next week I'm targeting 20 reps with two Maya rep breaks. Like yeah. you don't just want to keep adding the Maya rep breaks because then it really manages to cover how much performance you have. You could be getting weaker while getting more and more reps every Maya rep set every week by just doing more breaks. And then you're, you're backsliding. And you have no idea. Yeah, no, ex- exactly. Um, yeah, that's a... Uh... The my reps are really nice because people end up doing it kind of anyway on like hack squats, but they're not standardizing yeah. it, whereas it standardizes yes. it. So I found that to yeah. be really helpful, which is kind of from Borgay, but also seeing you guys kind of standardize breathers and then that became kind of a the same sort of concept in a, in a way. Yeah. And I like to say my reps because I think Borgay did a good job in explaining them, good job in yeah. introducing them. And it's not the same 
rest pause is a more general idea. Like you could rest pause for 30 seconds and just do another five reps. And many of those won't be close to failure, maybe just the last one or two. The idea behind my reps is after the first set, all of the reps you do in the mini sets are in that zone close to failure where the, the velocity is already quite low or lower than normal. The burn never leaves. Uh, the pump is insane. And a lot of the way my, um, uh, what's his name, Berge was pushing it is through a time saver. And it really is a great time saver. So especially if you're uh, running a little late for something or you're traveling and you have 30 minutes to hit your back, mile reps are a really good idea in that regard. And it's a good idea in general, but again, they're not this magical thing. Uh, they're just another effective strategy. And I would say it's the analogy there is like pasta versus potatoes versus rice. You know, which one's the most anabolic? There's no answer to that question. They're all very anabolic until you get tired of eating them and then you switch to the next one. So sometimes, uh, sometimes was an exaggeration. Uh, almost all the time, lots of folks are interested in what's the best and they don't realize that the best is like five things that need to be varied. Yeah. Um, it's like, imagine an alien coming down to modern day London and saying, what is the best car? And you're like, uh, what do you mean best? You give him a Bugatti. He's like, this car does not have any place to store things. And you're like, ah, that would be a truck. He's like, so truck is the best. You're like, yeah, no, you're not understanding. There's no such thing as the best car. There's cars that are for different uses. There's cars you get tired of driving. So you want to drive another car. And so there's, there's really 10 cars that are really great and you should use them all. And he'd be like, oh, okay. That's the same thing with exercises yeah. and techniques. And I think a lot of people are like, you know, use bar you i'm sure this happens to you all the time you do barbell rows and people are like why not just support it you're like why not barbell they're like oh i don't know i didn't think about any of the shit you were asking so. i know i think uh, i seen charlie said he gets asked that a lot and he literally just always like variation, variation. that's what i say i <laughs> yeah. started saying it and then my followers started saying it and that's yeah. great because then a, a, a funny question people get back uh, is uh, what do you mean by variation it's like well if you don't know what variation means you shouldn't be asking about best exercise you should be doing a template pre-planned thing and reading a bunch of stuff and then once you know what variation means then you can go back to asking yourself what the best exercise is and then you'll automatically be like oh yeah. actually there's no best exercise because of staleness and some exercises that are great turn into just okay and others become better and then you know things so it's one of those like you you automatically you know, have sort of jettisoned yourself out of the conversation by asking certain, you know, certain questions. Like if you're trying to you learn a, a programming language in a computer and you're like, do I have to know how to type to learn this? They're like, oh, okay, <laughs> back to typing class, <laughs> no computers for you. You know, there's uh, so that's that similar, similar thing was, you know, what's the best exercise for chest? I automatically know that you uh, would be best served by, by reading some just background books, yeah. like Brad Schoenfeld's book, subscribing to, you know, stuff you have watching YouTube channel, look, and some, some RP stuff to learn a bit of background about how that question is contextualized. And, and then and then you get a, a much better answer. For sure. Cool. Uh, the next question is from Ash May. He's asked, how would you go about assessing weaknesses slash lagging areas in your own physique objectively? Yeah, it's not that hard. You look at a muscle and you look at it compared to other muscles. You've probably seen about 600,000 pictures of other jack people before. Do you have a good average reference for what a good body looks like? You look at your muscles and you're like, is this like pretty big or not so big? I honestly think a lot of people overcomplicate it and they let their desires and biases enter. But if you clear your mind sufficiently, I don't think it's that hard. Okay, certainly you can be biased even after you do that, but I don't think it's that high of a percent chance. So like, so Steve, uh, you know, do I have really, really big biceps? I mean, they are really big, to be honest. <laughs> Compared to my triceps? <laughs> 
<laughs> but no, yeah, compa- comparatively, really. no. Yeah, so my biceps aren't aren't that big, right? But if I was to say like, oh yeah, my chest is a weak point, most people would be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Your chest can be visible from your back in a, a back pose. That automatically makes it way too big for the rest of your physique. But, you know, my quads, are they big? Yeah. Are, are my calves huge? They're fine. Yeah, they're fine. My forearms, my forearms are not that big. And they look kind of small in my my front double poses because compared to my upper arms, my my forearms, my lower arms are, are not that big. You know, it's, it's really not that hard. And you just got to get rid of the ego. You know, like you could be real attached to the, the idea that you have big biceps, but you got to admit to yourself, maybe your biceps aren't that big. And also if your biceps are clown-sized, enormous, your triceps aren't that big, you'd be like, oh, yeah, my triceps could be bigger. Um, so I think it's just... Uh, it's not so it's not so difficult. I'll say it's 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 not so difficult to do that um, people who have almost no knowledge of the sport can easily pick out weaknesses in pro physiques, which they regularly share in Instagram and YouTube comments as if they have some revelatory experience that we need to be applauding them for. Like, oh, oh yeah, he could really bring up his biceps. They're like, get the fuck out. You you, you don't think he knows that? <laughs> Oh my God. Like, how smart are you? Can you please just be in charge of the world? Because you could fix a lot of things. You know, like these small calves, like, whoa, you can see shapes. Holy fuck. Like, we need to study your visual system to make AI off of. So it's one of those things. I don't, I just don't think it's that hard. I think yeah. what protect what what prevents you know, people from seeing their own weaknesses is just the radical amount of desire to see other things. But if you're honest with yourself, you know, it with um pop lighting in your bathroom at night you can be like i know what needs to get bigger and what doesn't you know like you know can you imagine someone saying like yeah mike's physique's cool but his quads are too small this is like comedy like what compared to what like yeah compared to if he was 280 like you know uh, but you know if if someone was said like oh yeah mike's side delts are enormous like eh, that's not cool you know most of the poses they're fine they're not enormous are my traps enormous no they're fine are my biceps enormous no, they're super small compared to the rest of my physique forearms are super small calves are okay the rest of me probably looks pretty well proportioned uh, i'd say that's an analysis of my physique and you can do the same analysis for yours um, i would say though if you're pretty not jacked all over then the conclusion that everything is not so big is also correct and then just don't worry about it and just 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 grow and eventually you can bring up lagging muscle groups yeah i think that's i think you brought it up a, a long time ago in terms of like trying to specialize too early like these people want to be like bodybuilders and they're like oh this area is weak and it's like well unfortunately you're at the stage where everything's weak so yeah. just kind of concentrate on building yeah getting Build everything up big things so that the small things can now stand out yeah. like you know what's the worst part of a completely junk car like is it the ripped upholstery is it the faded paint is it the missing hubcaps like i don't know it's kind of all of it right but if you have a really awesome car and hubcap falls off then you have a clear problem that's very easy to detect so yeah just do your best and when you become bigger and big enough for asymmetries to present themselves they're usually not that hard to figure out again people who don't lift weights can pick them out on the internet and feel good about themselves while doing it Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. I'm always shocked as well when you do like, for example, like uh, Jared, I know he's put up pictures of his bicep like transformations and his back, the difference it makes when you do manage to bring those up, it's just like transformative to the physique. Yep. And Jared has still a weaker back than the rest of his physique and still smaller biceps. 
uh, and that, relatively speaking, will probably plague him for the rest of his career because everything else is going to get so comically large. I remember one time this past year, Jared tried to maintain his legs and he dropped down to like four sets of quads per week and they just grew anyway. And he was like, that's shit. So like, we're, him and I are talking about him just stopping training legs for a few months before his next classic physique show. And then starting a few months before and just finishing it out. So, but yeah, and sometimes you really can figure things out and sometimes you really have been training a muscle poorly and it really is genetically pretty gifted. And then it gets really big. Like back when I was powerlifting, I had a very weak back. Uh, my back just wasn't very big, but I wasn't training it with any mind muscle connection or hardly at all. Really. I'd do a couple pull downs a few times a week. And then when I started actually training my back, it turned out as one of my most genetically gifted muscle groups. So there's tons of hope for bringing up your muscles. But, uh, you know, when they're smaller than the others, it doesn't take rock scientists to figure it out. Yeah. And honestly, if you have trouble telling, you just need to look at more physiques on Instagram. Go on like, you know, bodybuilders app orders and just scroll through and look at all the competition photos and try to figure out where like do a little quiz. Like which guys like this guy right here compared to this guy, you know, who has the smaller biceps or versus their own triceps versus their chest. Like sometimes you'll see muscles that are very, very obvious. Like, oh, that guy definitely has weak pecs. And then you sort of your brain kind of learns what is not having a small chest look like on a physique compared to other things. And then after a while, you get quite good at it. And it's not a difficult skill, again, because tons of people who barely have an ability to tie their shoes and go to work seem to do it quite a lot on the internet. For sure. Cool. Uh, we'll get to the final question, which I don't know how long this is going to take, but it's a. I just plug it in here as a funny question. And it, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it might be easy for you to answer now because you've been dieting a little bit. Derek Jansen asked, top three cereals for massing phases. Oof, I haven't been dieting long enough for that shit. Ooh. Oh God, it makes me sick just thinking about <laughs> it. Um, top three of my favorite cereals. So Apple Jacks. Do you guys have those in the UK? Uh, not as a standard, no. I know what they are. People will know They're what they are. Good. They're very good. Uh, Apple Jacks are great. Um, I would used to say uh, Cocoa Pebbles, but... Um, I have a gag reflex thinking about that right now because I've done a few boxes of those during the mass phase. 270 grams of carbs to the face in one meal leaves you a little jilted. Um, and then um, uh, what are those? Pops? Um, Kellogg's Pops cereal, I think it, I think it is. Okay. Um, I got to have my Pops. Is that what it is? Anyway, are they like uh, honey? or They're like yellowish honey yeah. looking things. Corn. Honey corn cereal. Uh, oh, maybe. I don't Steve, I don't know what they make this cereal. Corn rice does it fucking really matter. I like that the box says like corn cereal, like as if anyone's like, oh, yeah. I, I don't know what this is made of. Like it's fucking kids cereal, unless you're allergic to some shit. You don't need to be looking at that. Um, generic, you know, generic grain paste is what they're made of. Uh, but yeah, I think those are pretty good. I used to, um, right after a show, sometimes I crave um, cereal called Honey Smacks um, yeah. because they're preposterously sweet. Uh, but after one or two servings of that, I'm like, I'm never going to eat this again. And I never do until my next bodybuilding show. Uh, so yeah, um, that's my answer currently. Ask me that in a few months and I'll have a much more starry-eyed answer for you. You'll be describing all the the textures, the oh, flavors. Yes. How it feels <laughs> when it hits your mouth and just paradise. Yeah. How does it do with milk without yeah, milk? Lucky Charms. Lucky Charms are good. Solid. Lucky Charms are good. Yeah. yeah. Fine cereal. Again, I would, if you gave me a bowl right now and you're like, diet's over, eat as much as you want, I just simply would push the bowl away. But yeah. I call this the honeymoon phase of dieting when you're yeah. really enjoying the fact you're dieting. Yeah. And you look like shit still. And uh, you know, people are like, oh, you're dieting? That's cool. And they sort of look you up and down like, 
keep going. Uh, but uh, but then you know later you get into that mid range phase where changes start to happen really fast and you feel hunger a little bit more. So actually, Mike, we probably don't have time for another question, but I don't know we if do. one more. Yeah, yeah, one more. Okay, cool. Let's get one more. Uh, Scott Murray McDonald has asked. If you're experiencing a magnitude of diet fatigue symptoms, yet training is still progressive, would you push through and stop being a special snowflake or play things safe and take a proactive deload? Deloads do not address diet fatigue uh, as much as they address training fatigue. Diet fatigue is addressed by diet breaks, which your deload could also function as, but it's generally not long enough to do a lot of damage there. So here's what I mean. If you develop a really hardcore case of diet fatigue, it's going to take a few weeks for you to get out of that. And a deload does not last a few weeks, it lasts one. Training fatigue can be largely mitigated in most cases in a week, which is why most of the time we don't take active rests when we get tired, we take deloads. So there's a bit of a time asymmetry there where for training fatigue, a deload is more than sufficient in most cases. For diet fatigue, a deload is rarely sufficient in extreme cases as being described. So my best advice is like, if you're progressing in training, that's fucking sweet. You can push that right aside and ask yourself the question of, am I going to break psychologically from this diet and end up cheating my ass off? Am I going to break psychologically after the diet is over, cheat my ass off and get super fat? Am I willing to make the trade-offs of misery and suffering for this next thing that I'm doing? And is it worth it? So if you have a nationally competitive show and you're in a crazy diet fatigue, doesn't matter, get it done, right? Then you just grit your teeth and hopefully get way right out of that. If you're trying to get in shape for a fun vacation with your friends and you don't want to just show up to the vacation, eat 10 bags of chips and throw up a lot and cry a lot, then just stop fucking dieting right now and go to maintenance. This is as lean as you're going to get for that vacation. Just have fun with your friends. So anywhere between those two, there are a variety of points uh, on the scale and it's up to you to choose uh, which one. So I would just treat diet fatigue and training fatigue relatively separately in that, in that situation. Fantastic. Yeah, I think that's a really nice reminder of the different time courses for diet or training related yeah. fatigue. Like yeah. gone are the days where people are thinking one day of refeeding is gonna somehow magically Can you imagine that was like that was we actually thought that as an industry for a long yeah. time. One day refeed, you're just hungrier the next day, more <laughs> miserable. Like oh fuck, this is working backwards. It does that happens a surprising amount for a lot of people. They get hungrier after them. It's like you've described in the past, I think, where it's like you get a glimpse of like the end, the light at the end of the tunnel, and then it's like, nope, back to darkness, and you're just like, you want to die. Okay. <laughs> I want to die. Yeah, hundred percent. So yeah, diet fatigue, if it develops to an extreme extent, takes literally weeks and sometimes even longer to get out of. You know, like you could be four weeks out of a show and still be having food dreams and fantasies and eating tons of food and really enjoying the fuck out of it. Um, that's not unusual. Now, if you have four weeks of training fatigue, you got overtrained, not overreached in your last prep. And you have really seriously considered programming and you've got to thank God and the angels above if you ever even recover from that sort of thing. So if you're still recovering after a month, unless it's like an injury or something, she, you know, you're really deep. Uh, imagine, Steve, uh, you got overreached and then four weeks later, you still hated training and it felt wrong. You'd be like, oh my God, did I break myself? Yeah. Well, with diet fatigue, that's pretty standard. So you got to gotta remember there are two quite different timescales there. I, I wish they were the same timescale. Gee, yeah. would that make writing our books and, and designing our apps easier? But, but, but they're not. And so you have to attend to them like they're two different things. So it's great that you're gaining strength. It's great that your training's going well. You have to look independently. At, Am I willing to bear the trade-offs? of this diet fatigue. And if you are, hey, fucking sweet. Hey, and the good news is you have two green lights now. So if you green light yourself on the diet fatigue, you already green lighted yourself on training. 
And so you don't have to make any weird choices of like, oh, I'm losing muscle, but I want to get lean. But if you're not willing to make the trade-off, which is perfectly fine, because sometimes it's a stupid idea to keep dieting like crazy, then you just got to pull the plug on that sort of thing. Yeah. I think you've, we've talked about it a little bit before, but it's where maybe you'll do a maintenance block of training for one month, but maybe you'll need multiple months of maintenance eating, but you could go into yes. hypertrophy uh, yes. that, or a slight surplus and that will repair yes. a lot. And it'll repair very, very fast. Yeah. So there's generally not a whole lot of diet fatigue that two months of intentional massing doesn't clear up. Because, you know, we, two weeks in, you're like, I could do this forever. Four weeks in, you're like, this is fun. Six weeks in, you're like, I have to eat what today? Do I really have to eat all that? And then eight weeks in, you're like, please start the fat loss diet. I can't do this anymore. So that's how that crumbles in most cases. Awesome. Mike, thank you so much uh, for the Q&A today. It's always great catching up. Uh, people really enjoy these. So uh, I don't know if you've got, I think you said you had a secret project going on at RP. So it's probably nothing new you can talk about, but uh, do let but them know if there is. Yeah, yeah. Lots of secret projects and they all have different timelines, but... Uh, you know stuff will be coming out and it'll be it'll be cool fantastic guys thank you so much for listening as always definitely check out renaissance periodization check out rp dr mike over on instagram definitely be following along with his diet it's always interesting to see uh, mike go through the processes as well and yeah thank you all for listening we'll catch you soon take care peace So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.